Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Multifamily Real Estate Investing presented by Mara Poling. My name is Pat Poling. I am the founder and CEO of Mara Poling, and I'm very excited to be with you today to discuss a topic near and dear to our hearts, and that is uh, investing rule number one, don't lose money. We're going to cover some great material for you today. As always, please visit the Learning Center at marapoling.com. That's M-A-R-A-P-O-L-I-N-G.com. We have lots of great material there. You'll have links to a number of different uh, services that you can listen to and subscribe to uh, our podcasts. In addition to that, we have a webinar series that is uh, uh, associated with each of our podcasts. So tonight's session Rule number one, Don't Lose Money, has a sister podcast, pardon me, a sister webinar coming up in a couple of weeks that you can register for. Uh, if you happen to be listening to this podcast and that session has already occurred, you can go to the Learning Center at marapolling.com and you can listen to and watch a recording of that webinar uh, as well as gain access to some of the presentation materials. So thanks again for joining us and let's go ahead and uh, dive into what I think will be a great, uh, a great subject and hopefully a good uh, use of the next uh, 20 or 30 minutes of your uh, valuable time. Uh, we're all familiar with rule number one, don't lose money, uh, attributed to Warren Buffett, uh, a, uh, a very successful uh, investor. I think everyone would have to agree. Uh, and conceptually, I think everybody is pretty much in line with, well, yeah, if I want to make money, the first thing I should do is not lose any of it. Uh, and, of course, Buffett adds rule number two, which is uh, see rule number one. So uh, rule number one on the surface seems rather obvious and conceptually makes a lot of sense. I'd like to dive into it in a little more detail, not just from a conceptual standpoint, uh, but let's look at some of the math behind rule number one, don't lose money. And I think this will help bring the point uh, home in a little different way uh, and help set up the conversation we want to have today about how a diversified portfolio uh, will minimize the risk you have and uh, hopefully keep you from uh, losing money. So let's, let's take a couple of uh, examples here. Let's start with a baseline that we could all uh, relate to. We're going to walk down to our uh, local financial institution and walk in with $1,000 and say, I uh, would like to, uh, to purchase a treasury bill. And let's say that uh, the T-bill I'm looking at has, uh, has a 3% uh, uh, rate of return associated with it. So I'm going to give them my $1,000. And at the end of year one, uh, that $1,000 will be worth $1,030. I'll have received some return on that. And at the end of year two, 1060 and so on. And we're just going to use five years for, for our uh, example here today. At the end of five years, it's $1,150. I've made 150 bucks over five years, $30 a year, my 3% return. Nothing terribly excited about from that standpoint. Uh, a very safe, secure investment uh, backed by the full faith and credit of the federal government and, uh, and relatively low risk in terms of its return. Now, there are other risks 
in, in investing in these kinds of assets, inflation risks, and so on. We're not getting in any of that here today. We can talk about that at another time. But if you're looking for a rock-solid place to put money where you can say, I am not going to lose this money, that would be the benchmark we would start with. At least that's what we're going to look at. Most of us aren't in a position where that sort of a fixed income investment is going to be appropriate for us. And as I said, there are some other risks associated with that kind of investment. Uh, so let's say that uh, I've got another $1,000, and this $1,000, uh, I want a need a higher rate of return. So uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and make 20% on this money. Uh, and if I could get that same experience, uh, especially if I could get some compounding, maybe this is an equity I'm going to invest in, uh, my $1,000 at the end of a year would be worth $1,200. At the end of year two, it would be $1,440. At the end of year three, another 20%, so on and so on. And with some compounding in there, by the time I get to the end of year five, my $1,000 has well more than doubled, up to $2,488. Uh, and that's if this 20% were every year, like clockwork and so on. It gives me a, roughly a 30% return uh, over the course of, uh, of those five years, in part because of the compounding that we experience, which is another uh, tool that, uh, that Warren believes strongly in and that we think also makes a lot of sense. The challenge with that is, uh, I don't know about you all, but I'm not aware of anywhere where I can invest $1,000 and receive a 20% annual return like clockwork uh, without the uh, instability that might go with that. So, uh, so that's not really a, a realistic solution. So let's look at what some volatility might look like, right? So I could have situations where maybe I make a little more than 20% or I make a little less than 20%. Um, uh, but let's look at three scenarios in particular. So let's look at scenario number one. I put my $1,000 in. And the very first year, I just don't make a return. I don't lose any of my $1,000, but I don't make a return. Well, if that happens, and then I make my 20% year after year, I get to a little over $2,000, which is a little over 20% in terms of my return, about 21. Um, not a bad return at all. Uh, I probably didn't enjoy year one. I was maybe a little worried, um, but I kind of stuck with it. Again, though, that's looking at a fairly straight line through years two and four through five. That's probably not what I'm going to experience. So let's look at another example. Uh, I put my $1,000 in, and the very first year is a tough year. I lose $500, right? So rule one, don't lose money. Well, what happens if I do lose money? So I lose $500. So now I have a $500 investment. Well, in order for me to make a decent return, I may have to be more aggressive. If, if I leave it basically in the same kind of investment, and let's assume again that I make my 20% return, I basically, by the end of five years, have gotten back to even. I make like 30 bucks. Not, nothing to write home about. So I'd have been better off, obviously, putting my money in that uh, treasury bill if that's the kind of volatility I'm going to see. Um, but that's probably not what people would do, right? That's probably not what I would do. If I lost 50%, I'd say, well, I've got to make that 50% up. So I'm going to need to make 50% a year every year thereafter, year two, year three, year four, year five, in order to get back to my original 30% uh, return. Well, 
if I had risk associated with volatility when I was trying to make 20%, you can imagine the kind of risk I'd experience in terms of volatility if I was trying to make 50. So let's say I do that, and in year two, because of that volatility, I don't lose any more money, but I don't make any money. Uh, my return is zero. Well, now in year three, four, and five, I've got to make 70% in order to get back to that same 30% return. So you can see the rabbit hole this starts to lead you down. If you're swinging for the fences, if you're trying to make a, a big return, and I would say 20% is a big return, uh, you're going to bring on some risk. And when you bring that risk on, uh, if you lose money, you now need to take on more risk to get back to the same level of achievement that you were anticipating in the very beginning. And that incremental risk brings more volatility, which increases the likelihood of uh, not only not making money, but potentially losing money, and you start chasing your tail down this rabbit hole, uh, and that's one of the reasons we all think it makes sense to rule number one, uh, let's not lose any money, right? So that's, that's part of how we think about rule number one, and its importance is underscored by rule number two, which is uh, go see rule number one, right? So we talked a little about treasury bills. Uh, those kinds of investments are rock solid, uh, certificate of deposit uh, that's within the FDIC insurance limits at a local uh, bank. Those are all be very secure. Uh, that you really can use as a baseline uh, for this analysis. And you're looking at returns that are in the you know very low single digits, 2 3%, probably something in that range. The answer to that, of course, is to diversify. Uh, and diversification in our eyes is more than having some equities, some, some stocks, and more than having some fixed income, bonds and CDs and those sorts of things. Those are absolutely important parts of a diversified portfolio. We believe there are other components that also make sense to add to, add to that. There was a study done just a few years back that looked at the returns and the stability pardon me, <clears throat> of a, a variety of different investments. Um, on the stable side, and this was all benchmark against uh, treasuries, on the stable side, uh, government bonds, so municipals, those sorts of things, and corporate bonds as uh, having a very similar types of stability, something on the order of, uh, you know, just two or three times the uh, potential volatility that you might experience in uh, treasury rates. <coughs> Excuse me. It's been a long week, and we've uh, had a lot of great sessions with folks. My voice is a little strained, so my apologies. Uh, if you move a little farther out and look at equities, uh, equities were significantly more volatile in the order of 15 to maybe even 20 times as volatile uh, as treasuries. And as you would imagine, the returns are inversely correlated to that. So bond returns were in the low to middle single digits, and equities were in the high single digits to just about double digits. And that's an overtime kind of uh, return. This analysis was done over about 20 years. Um, uh, commodities, so investments in gold and uh, other uh, similar items, uh, potentially had a significant amount of volatility uh, and lower returns. Uh, so you might look at those and go, well, why would I want to invest in those? 
uh, and I'm not a commodity trader, so I'm not giving advice on commodities, um, but there's certainly an element of long-term value uh, and stability by having some commodity in your portfolio, like I said, like gold or some other precious metals uh, and the like. So, um, so that's an important component. Um, wouldn't it be great if I could find an investment that was closer to the bond end of stability and yet had returns that were in the neighborhood of equities? Well, the good news is that's exactly where commercial real estate falls. And within the commercial real estate space, uh, we're big advocates for multifamily, hence the name of our little podcast here, right? Multifamily real estate investing. Uh, and in this particular study, what we saw was that uh, these real estate assets performed uh, on a stability measure uh, right in line with government and corporate bonds. And at the same time, generated returns that were actually uh, slightly in excess of small cap and large cap equities. And of course, uh, with commercial real estate, you receive uh, tax benefits that you don't get with either one of those. For example, uh, if you have an equity that increases in value, you can't do a 1031 exchange and roll that, uh, that tax liability over into another investment. Uh, and when you get your, uh, your uh, return uh, statement at the end of the year from your fixed income investment, whether it's a mortgage or something else that you've put your money into, you don't get a K-1 at the same time saying that you've lost money because of depreciation, which is what you get with commercial real estate. None of this is advocacy for everybody should have all their money in commercial real estate. Obviously, I'm a commercial real estate guy, so is uh, Bill, uh, my partner, and, uh, and our entire team. We're all uh, very vested in that space. Uh, and having said that, we all have meaningful holdings in those other uh, elements, uh, equities and fixed incomes and a little bit of gold and the like. And the reason for that is a diversified portfolio can smooth out that volatility that we all experience. And that's really the name of the game. If we don't want to lose money, we want to be in a position where we have uh, mitigated those, uh, those risks to the best of our ability. Now, one of the ways that we do that, and this is something we encourage everyone to think about when you're looking at uh, potentially making an investment in real estate, whether it's an investment with a firm like ours or whether it's an investment uh, that you're going to be making on your own. Maybe you're going to go buy a fourplex or something like that. Uh, and that is how you perform the analysis of that investment. Uh, and I'll give you, and what we describe it as is uh, the 80-20 rule versus the 50-50 rule. Uh, and this ties directly back into how do you achieve rule number one, how do you not lose money. So uh, let me give you an example, very simple. Uh, we're going to purchase an asset. The asset has uh, average rents of $800. Uh, in the competitive analysis in the marketplace, we see that uh, the average rents in the marketplace for similarly uh, improved units with similar amenities and so on uh, is $900. So we see a $100 differential. Uh, we could, in our underwrite, in our forecast, we could use that $100 differential. If we do that, there's some chance that we're going to be a little low, that maybe we could get 110 or 120 because, again, that $100 differential is an average based on what's going on in the marketplace. 
and there's a chance that we could be a little low. Maybe we could only get 80 or $90. So it's a bit of a coin flip, if you will, a 50-50 proposition. Uh, we're more conservative, and we think this is part of how you don't lose money, is let's move that goalpost. Instead of targeting a $100 of rent differential, maybe we target $75 or $70 or even $65. Some number that, again, this is not statistically uh, you know, calculated. It's more of a concept, right? We want to move from 50-50 to something in the neighborhood of 80-20, where we think there is an 80% likelihood that our estimate is going to be accurate or potentially low, meaning that at $70, 80% chance that we'd get that 70 bucks and maybe something higher than that, and only a 20% chance that the rents would actually perform uh, below that at $50 or 55 or 60 something in that range. Uh, by doing so, two things happen. One, we significantly increase the likelihood that we are not going to lose money. And two, we also walk away from some investments that actually could be really good investments. Uh, just because something has this 50-50 proposition doesn't mean it's not going to perform well. It simply means there's a greater likelihood of it performing well if we use this 80-20 mentality. And if you use that throughout your entire underwriting process as we do, whether it's on rent growth or uh, vacancy and occupancy or capital investment or expense management or whatever it might happen to be, uh, you will have built into your model a healthy amount of conservatism such that you will have taken risk off the table. We haven't taken all the risk off the table because there's inherent risk in a real estate investment. If you want to take all the risk off the table, like we said, you go buy a treasury or a CD and you'll get the appropriate return associated with that. So we are in, in, uh, implementing some volatility, right? Remember we said bonds and real estate are going to be in that maybe three to four times the volatility that you see in treasury rates, but we're not at the 15 to 20 times volatility that we see in, in equities. So we want to play on that end of the space. The one other item that often comes up when we talk about commercial real estate, and in particular, uh, this whole notion of, well, let's not lose any money is, uh, well, I want to make sure I buy when prices are low so I can sell when prices are high. And we're all about uh, buying low and selling high. Um, we would actually hearken back to another uh, Buffett truism, if you will. And that is, uh, you certainly want to buy when assets are on sale to the extent that you can do that. And then the hold period is forever. Uh, and we're big advocates of that not necessarily in terms of any one individual asset, but about real estate in general. Uh, an investment in commercial real estate, while individual assets will be turned maybe every four, five, six years for a number of different reasons, uh, an investment in commercial real estate is a long-term investment, uh, something that you want to be in a position to do for not just five years, but for 10 or, or years longer. And here's one of the reasons why. So pricing for commercial real estate is tied to something called cap rates, capitalization rates. Uh, we've got a whole another session in which we, uh, it's called It's Just Math, in which we go into the calculation of cap rates and so on. Uh, I'll give you the quick and dirty on it, which is this, is if cap rates move up, that means that prices per went down. If cap rates move down, then prices of commercial real estate went up. 
and that's essentially the relationship between cap rates and uh, and the prices of commercial real estate. So you would think you would want to purchase assets when cap rates are high, meaning prices are relatively low relative to the net operating income you're purchasing. And if you were going to sell, you'd want to sell when cap rates are low and prices are high. And that's absolutely true if you're going to get into the real estate space and then exit the real estate space completely. Again, we advocate holding over a longer term. If you hold over a longer term, the longer you hold commercial real estate, the less critical and the less impactful cap rate movement becomes. Some recent modeling that we did shows that uh, simply holding uh, over one uh, uh, first generation to je second generation cycle, so that would be 10 years. So in other words, there's a purchase of an asset that's held for five years. That asset is sold via 1031 exchange. A second asset is purchased, so the second generation asset. It's held for five years, and then it's sold, and, and we're exiting real estate. Again, we would look to probably be in that position longer uh, with the third generation or, or others, but let's just look at that. Simply doing that, you can mitigate about 130 basis points of cap rate movement, meaning that uh, you'll end up with the exact same return uh, as you would if you held one asset that entire time frame uh, and then tried to exit uh, because of the additional impact you get from this uh, exchange capability. What that means is commercial real estate actually has the ability to mitigate volatility that's in the marketplace because of the longevity of these hold periods. And that's often one of the reasons people are uh, tentative about potentially investing in commercial real estate is, well, I think the prices are really high right now. I want to wait to see if cap rates move and prices maybe pull back a little bit. I agree. It would be fantastic if you knew how to do that. There's a word for that. It's called timing the market. And if you try and time the market, you are absolutely introducing more risk into your equation than if you use something like dollar cost averaging when you're purchasing equities or fixed incomes, or if you extend the hold period, uh, which is what we are encouraging people to do when you look at uh, an investment in commercial real estate. So when we look back at rule one, we don't want to lose any money. Uh, and we don't want to lose that money because when we lose money, it puts greater uh, impact on us and greater focus on needing to have higher and higher returns so we can get back to even or even a modest kinds of uh, kind of return. So losing money uh, adds risk to our portfolio, which means we have a likelihood of losing even more money. So if we start off and don't lose money, then we have a much better environment to operate in. You can certainly do that with things like T-bills. Uh, other elements uh, help diversify your portfolio, and a diversified portfolio is one of the best ways to not lose money. Commercial real estate component. If you do not have commercial real estate, so I don't mean your home, uh, and I don't mean a, a single-family rental that you've got or something along those lines, uh, that's not commercial real estate. I'm talking about an investment in a commercial property, whether it's a uh, you know, a uh, storage uh, facility or a, a piece of industrial uh, uh, property or, as we advocate, a multifamily real estate investment, having commercial real estate brings additional stability uh, to your portfolio as well as returns and tax benefits that we talked about. The underwriting of that really should be <laughs> on this 80-20 mindset 
not on a 50-50. That continues to move risk off the table. And think long-term. Uh, when you think long-term, you're going to smooth out that volatility that will exist in the marketplace, again, increasing the likelihood that you are not going to lose money. There's lots more of this great content on the Learning Center at marapolling.com, M-A-R-A-P-O-L-I-N-G.com. You can also find some great material there about us and what we do uh, and uh, contact information for us so that you can uh, shoot me an email or if you'd like, uh, set up a phone call to uh, uh, allow me to answer questions for you directly if you have interest in that. Please check out the other episodes we have. This is uh, one of the episodes we have in Season 2. We're very excited to bring a second season of multifamily real estate investing presented by Mara Poling to you all. And with that, join us again next week uh, for our next session. Thanks again, and have a great day.